week three of a new series that we started uh, three weeks ago uh, called Reconstruction, Building Good Faith in an Age of Deconstruction. And I kind of left you hanging uh, last Sunday. I didn't mean to, but we were talking about the four stages of faith, and I mentioned four stages, and I told you about three of them. And so I left you hanging in perplexity, and that's not necessarily a fun place to be. So I'm going to introduce the fourth stage to you. Uh, today, and we're going to do just a little bit of a recap, and then I want to get into, let me grab this real quick, then I want to get into um, kind of the big thing I want to talk with you about. Uh, but if you don't know what deconstruction is, the definition that I found that I really liked was um, it's systematically uh, dissecting the, the beliefs of your childhood, or in some cases, rejecting the beliefs of your childhood. So it's something that Christian people do. And it's basically like wrestling with doubt or asking hard questions or just struggling to figure out what you really believe about things. What do you really believe about God or what do you believe about Jesus or what do you believe about the Bible or the church and that kind of stuff? It's something that most of us have done at some point in our lives, maybe multiple times in our lives. We've done some form of, of deconstruction, but it's, it's become more popular recently because of social media and, you know, the hashtags deconstruction and exvangelical and that kind of stuff. And so uh, this series is meant to kind of talk about it in two parts. The first part is why are people deconstructed? And then the second part is how do we reconstruct uh, good faith? And so then last week we talked about the intersection of faith and doubt and how it, it, church has to make room for people who are doubting. Like it, it can't be that, that as soon as you have doubts or as soon as you have questions or as soon as you start asking things that make us uncomfortable that we kick those people out. That, that does not make any sense whatsoever and it's not the way of the followers of Jesus. Like the church has to make room for people like Thomas and it has to make room for people like John. The skeptical and the convinced should be welcomed into the community of faith. And um, that's because doubt is not a bad thing. It's, uh, doubt is often the... the path that leads us into a deeper understanding of the faith or a deeper expression of the faith. And that's where the four stages of faith come in. So a recap on those real quick. This is from Brian McLaren's book, uh, Faith and Doubt. And you've got stage one, which is simplicity, usually happens in childhood. And it's when it's defined by simple obedience, simple trust, um, unquestioned loyalty to authority. Everything is in black and white. It's, it's good versus bad. It's us versus them. It's right versus wrong. That's stage one simplicity. Stage two, which usually happens somewhere in adolescence, maybe it's early in adolescence or maybe it's really late in adolescence, but it's somewhere in adolescence we move into stage two complexity. And this is where we start to make faith our own. So this is when we start to kind of push against authority and we question the absolutes and we discover that there are different ways of understanding the world and there are different interpretations of scripture and there's different ways of approaching things and so like we're this is about what works for us so like stage one is kind of you know that just the we take whatever the authority gave us and said this is what is true then that is what is true in stage two we're starting to ask is this true and so this is kind of we're kind of making faith our own at this time stage three can happen at any time of life. This happens in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, our 60s, our 70s, or at any time. Because stage three, perplexity, is usually brought on by a crisis. And it could, and it could be a tragedy, it could be a relational crisis, it could be a 
financial crisis, it could be a health crisis, it could be an existential crisis. It's any kind of crisis brings us into stage three perplexity. And that's when we realize that the simple formulas of stage one and stage two just aren't working anymore. Just something doesn't feel right about them. You know, and the pastor said, here's three steps to a great marriage. And we did all three steps and the marriage still wasn't great. Or what, like it just, we just figure out that life is way more messy than uh, maybe we thought it was. And this is the point in which a lot of people leave the church. This is the point. People that are deconstructing right now are probably in stage three perplexity because this is the point in which a lot of people walk away from church. Not all their fault necessarily because a lot of times the church doesn't make it a very safe place for people in stage three perplexity because they start asking questions that make us uncomfortable and, and we kind of we don't want to deal with that because we're afraid where those questions might lead. And so people in perplexity often end up deconstructing not in a healthy community but online, which as we know, online is not always a healthy community. Um, and then the fourth stage, though, that's the one I didn't talk about. I just left you hanging right there in perplexity last week. <laughs> that's, thanks, good luck. Um, but there is a fourth stage. There is life after doubt. There is faith after doubt. Uh, some people will enter perplexity and, and never step foot in a church again. Or some people will enter perplexity and, and give up on faith or, or say, you know, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus or I don't believe in God anymore and those kinds of things. But there are others who will reconstruct that faith and enter um, harmony is what this last one's called. And that's when we learn to get comfortable with our faith. And we learn to get comfortable with the fact that we... I don't have the answer to every question. There's some, some questions I'm not going to be able to answer, and I, I get learned comfortable with that. And I learned to get um, the answers I do have, I hold um, without arrogance and without you know, being consent, condescending to others. And um, it's, I hold them in humility and grace. And this stage, I think, is best defined by something Paul said in Galatians in 5 verse 6. He said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And he was pushing against a structure in Galatians that was really defined by stage one simplicity. It was like circumcision or no circumcision, that's the way you determine who's part of the kingdom. And Paul's like, no, that's, neither of those things has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So I think stage four harmony is when we start to understand the centrality of love to the message of the gospel, and then we start to experience some peace of mind about our faith. And I want to talk about Paul for just a minute here because, uh, well, I, I preach a lot on Paul's letters and we just did a big, huge series on Paul's letters. But as I was thinking about these four stages this week and thinking about Paul's story, I, Paul's story kind of follows some of that. Like, I don't know that I could easily put him in the category of perplexity. He did talk about having a thorn in his flesh that, you know, but I don't know that I would easily put him there. But I think you can clearly see where Paul went from stage one simplicity to, to stage four harmony. Um, because when, when he started out, he was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the strictest of the strictest when it came to religion. I mean, he was, he, it was all about the rules. Everything was in black and white. You did this or you didn't do this, and you were a part of us or you weren't a part of us. And if you weren't a part of us, Paul was actually persecuting and killing people whom he disagreed with. And he describes all of this in his story when he talks in uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 14. Uh, or verse 4, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. And this is, you're familiar with this. I'm going to do it with the message version because I like the way Peterson translates this. Paul says, you know my pedigree. Like a legitimate birth, 
circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, and he's talking about these, the Judaizers in, in uh, he said, the credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along as anything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once taught, thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I don't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally. I could experience his resurrection power. I could be a partner in his suffering, and I could go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection of the dead, I wanted to do it. But I'm not saying I have all this all together. I'm not saying that I have it made. But I'm well on my way. I'm reaching out for Christ who so wonderfully reached out to me. And friends, don't get me wrong. I, by, by no means do I count myself an expert at all of this. But I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running and I'm not turning back. And, and I almost read in that, especially the way Peterson translates it. Like I read Paul's deconstruction story. Do you hear it? Like when he's talking about, uh, here's what I used to believe. This is what I used to be like. These are the, I used to be all about following the rules. I used to be all about you know, being assured that I was right. I was in the right tribe. I was in the right group. I was at the right church. Like I used to be sure, assured of those things. And now I consider all of that nothing compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And now I'm just chasing Jesus. And that's all I care about is chasing Jesus. And he says at the end, then he kind of comes back and goes, not that I have it made. Not that I've got it all figured out. I mean, you hear the humility in it you hear the grace in it and you hear him moving from kind of a simplistic a simplistic faith to to harmony and it started on a Damascus road it started when he encountered Jesus the real Jesus not the one that his religion taught him about but the one rooted in love not religion and then Paul went on to say stuff like this I just I went on this 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 way like the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love or uh, the book we just got done studying. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Or at the end of that statement there, a couple verses later. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. At the end of his letter to the Corinthians, do everything in love. Like, like Paul goes from persecuting people in the name of his religion to talking about love and talking about Jesus. And that's what it's all about. Like something changed in his life. Something changed in Paul's life that brought him to an understanding of what Jesus taught, that, you know, the greatest commands are rooted in love. The central ethic of the gospel, the central ethic of the Christian faith is rooted in love. And, and Paul came to understand that, and then he wrote some of the most beautiful passages that we have about love and helped us understand what that meant. And so I, I want to share all of that. Just to, That's not what the sermon's about. That was all free content. I want to share all of that just to say there is 
life after doubt. So if you are in the process of, of deconstructing, or you think maybe you are, or you're wrestling with doubt, or you're wrestling with questions, and you're wrestling with things about faith, and you're like, this, you know, because perplexity feels like everything has fallen apart, and everything that you once held true is now going away, and it's a very disorienting thing to go through. There is life on the other side of it. There is hope after doubt. There is faith after doubt. Uh, and, and I think Paul is a, a great example of that. So... Um, that's, I, w- I wanted to give you that because the rest of the message, we're going to talk about this question right here. Why are people deconstructing? And the reason I'm doing it in this order is because I, I think we have to ask hard questions and we have to understand why people are deconstructing before we seek to be understood. I'm stealing that from Stephen Covey. You remember that. You know, he said, seek first to understand, then be understood. And usually Christians get that backwards. We want to be understood. And so we end up yelling at people and preaching at people and telling people what they ought to believe and what they ought to do and what they ought to be, you know, the doctrines they ought to follow. And we don't ever listen to what people are saying. So um, what I want to talk about is like, why are people deconstructing? Why are people leaving the church? Why are people leaving Jesus? Or why are they thinking about leaving the church? Or why are they thinking about leaving Jesus? And like I say, this may be you. You may be watching online and this is you right now and you're thinking about it. You're wondering, I don't know that I want to hang on to this. Uh, it may be somebody you love. It may be one of your kids that's, that's going through this, or it may be um, a spouse or, or whoever. You know, just kind of, and so the, I want to try to give some of the reasons why I think it's happening. And um, I'm going to give you five. We're not going to get into any of them deep. I'm going to give you five. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Number one, if you're deconstructing, you won't like. So I'm, I'm going to offend the, the people deconstructing first. And then I'll offend Christians with the, with the other four. There, those of you that are, like, secure in your faith, you'll get offended with the other four. But the first one, if you're in deconstruction, you're not going to like. It's trending. This is, this, understand what I mean here, that I think one of the reasons more people are deconstructing today is because more people are deconstructing today. And it's out there online, and when you do deconstruct, you're going to get more likes and more follows and more friends and, and a community that's going to open their arms and say, oh, welcome to the other side. You know, I'm so glad that you're giving up that old fairy tale religion and come on with us. I mean, you're going to be welcomed with open arms and receive validation because that's, that's part of why it's happening. That's part of, you know, a hashtag is not meant to just add something to the end of the sentence. A hashtag is meant so you can click it and find community of other people who are posting and talking about the same things. And so that's one of the things that happens. Um, I have uh, a little over 1,000 followers on Instagram. I'm nowhere near influencer status. Like no marketers are reaching out to me asking me to, you know, market their products and be an influencer. I have a very small following on Instagram. But... Tomorrow, if I was to deconstruct on Instagram, um, and, and I thought about doing this as a social experiment, but I figured most people would misunderstand and I'd lose my job. So, I, but tomorrow, if I was to post, hey, I grew up in a Christian home, I um, graduated from a Christian college, I have a degree in theology, I've, I've preached for 18 years, and I've now come to believe that none of it's true. I don't buy any of it. It's all false. The Bible can't be trusted. Um, I promise you I'd gain way more followers than 1,000. 
I might go viral. I don't know, but I might. I mean, I, w- I would get a lot of likes and a lot of shares and a lot of follows because we, we love that story right now. That story is trending right now. And if I attacked the church in the process, I'd get even more. If I started saying, and here's what the church has done wrong, and this is what Christianity's done wrong, and here's the historic sense. I mean, I, w- I feel like I would get a lot more followers because it is trending right now. So when people see a prominent pastor or a famous Christian author, or a famous Christian singer deconstructing online, it creates followers, and it creates validation, and we have an entire society that has been taught to value validation among all things. We want likes, we want followers, we want friends, we want community. And I'm not saying it's all social media's fault, I'm just saying it's a part of it. So I'm not, you know, I'm, you know if you're in the process of this, you may get offended, like, oh, you're just saying I'm just following the trends. I'm not saying you're just following the trends, but some people are. And, it's, and, it's, and we're, we're looking for that validation because we may not be finding it in church. It may be that we start asking hard questions and the church doesn't become a very welcoming place anymore. So we go to the place that is welcoming us. And that's the broader, you know, we want to experience belonging and acceptance. And so we find it in the broader culture more so than we do in the community of faith. So that's number one. All right, number two. Let me, let me get to offending the faithful. So if you're not in deconstruction, like you're not at all in deconstruction, this, I don't know if this one offend you. I just think it may make you uncomfortable, especially if you have those little ones that just walked out the door or if you got some bigger ones that are going to be here for the second uh, service. Here's the second reason I'm going to give you. It's a normal part of growing up. I, having doubts, wrestling with faith, questioning whether or not you believe everything you were taught to believe in church, questioning or not you, you think that all the things your parents taught you were true, that, like that's normal. That, that's something that all of us do as, as we grow up. And uh, I like Lena Abijamara. Uh, she wrote a book called Fractured Faith. And in it, she describes her, her deconstruction story. And she had a, a major crisis of faith. She left her church where she found salvation. She became a Christian at that church. She left her church. Um, she thought about leaving ministry. She thought about leaving faith altogether. And she did something pretty wise that I would recommend anybody do that's going through something like this. She decided to seek out counsel. So she decided to go see a counselor. And she said, I'm just, I'm, I'm dealing with all of this perplexity and all of this confusion. And I just want somebody to process it with me. Somebody to maybe ask some probing questions. And why are you feeling this way? And what's going on? And what's really happening? What's happening beneath the surface? So she went to see a counselor. His name was Doug. And uh, she was describing her faith crisis as like stage one and stage two. Like first stage, everything's great. I have all the answers to every question, and I just love my church, and I love my pastor, and everything, I just love it. And then the second stage is like I I don't know any, I don't know what's true anymore. Uh, Because she was hurt by church, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But I just don't know what's true anymore. And she was describing that to Doug, and Doug was like, well, how does that make you feel? Sounds like a counselor. You know, how does that make you feel? And uh, she said, disillusioned. That's how I would describe that. Like the first stage was new life, and the second stage is disillusionment. And Doug kind of arced an eyebrow and said, is that what you see here? I kind of see the normal Christian life. And here's what she said about it. She said, I've come to see that Doug was right. That what we call disillusionment in our faith is often just the normal Christian life. And perhaps it's time we hear this more regularly in the church. Too many of today's youth groups are focused on entertaining the young with some doctrine thrown in for good measure, but not enough to turn the masses away. And so young people lean into messages that promise God's favor in their lives. And 
I'll, this is my commentary on her commentary. That's not just young people. They underline verses that promise good things in their lives, and they judge God's goodness by the number of likes they get on social media posts. Again, my commentary. That's not just young people. By the time churches send their young folks into life after high school, they've taught them to play the part of a popular Christian speaker or worship leader, but have by and large missed any opportunity to disciple them. Their maturity is an inch deep and will not sustain the assault on their faith that's sure to come in this broken world. What young people need is to be lovingly and clearly taught that when they leave home and experience a crisis of faith, they are simply living the normal Christian life. It can be painful, but if they know it's coming, they might be able to navigate it more smoothly. I, I think she's right. Like, I think some of the things that, that Todd does in our student ministry is, is all geared around stage two complexity. Like, he forces our students to ask hard questions. If, you're, if you've got a student right now, you know what they're talking They talked about gender identity uh, last Wednesday night. And a couple Wednesday nights before that, they were talking about pornography. And that makes parents uncomfortable. Like, parents were like, what are they talking about in there? I don't know. Do I want my kids talking about these things? Yes, you want your kids talking about these things. You want it talking about it in a, in a safe community where they can talk about these things. I mean, that's what he's doing because they're in this stage of life, this adolescence, where they're questioning, are these things that I've been taught, are they true, and what do I believe about these things? And, and you want to do that, and while they're still in the home in the church, then when they're just out in the broader world, I mean, we want to do that in, in our youth ministry. And, um, you know, we teach stage one simplicity in our children's ministry. It's not that the stages are bad. It's not like we got to get rid of, you know, just we got to teach our kids, you know, we got to not let them have simplicity. No, they need simplicity. We, in our children's ministry right now, they're learning right from wrong and good from bad and, and true and false. I mean, they need to learn those things. And then as they get older, they need to be able to question those things in a safe environment so that it's preparing them for what's inevitably going to happen at some point. That, that you're going to have to wrestle through these questions. You're trying to give them something that grounds them for what's coming. So, so that's, you know, and I'm not, it's not as simple because you're like, wow, you're not really going deep at all. You're just saying, why are people deconstructing? Well, it's trendy and it's normal. <laughs> it, it, it's not as simple as that. I'm going to give some other reasons. But that, that was, those are two of the reasons. And I just think it's important for us to, to know that. So. Here's a few more. The sins of the church. I'll use Lena, uh, Lena's example of this because that was her faith crisis. So in her book, Fractured Faith, uh, she served under a verbally abusive and emotionally abusive pastor. And uh, he was the pastor who led her to faith. And he turned out to be a bully. And there's so many stories of that right now that it's, it's scary. Like every streaming channel has some expose of something in church. You've seen a lot of, you've seen the Gwen Chamlin story. I know you've watched part of that or you've seen the Hillsong documentary or you've listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill or like it's like every streaming doc, uh, channel, every podcast service has some story of pastors who are abusing their position or churches who are abusing their position or, or church hurt. Church shame, church guilt, all these kinds of things. I, I made the mistake, I shouldn't say mistake, but I, I made the mistake of following uh, Julie Roy's on Instagram. <laughs> and, I, and I like Julie Roy's and I like what she's doing and what she's doing is probably needed in the church. She's a church investigative reporter. She investigates pastors and churches that are, are doing wrong and she exposes them. And uh, I, 
I got interested in her because uh, I listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and then she kind of did some stuff on that. So then I found her podcast, and, and it's really good. She's got a great podcast. She's got a great Instagram page. But every week, she drops another story about another church, about another pastor. And it's like, oh, man, it's just, it, and people in the comment section come after her, like, why are you doing this? You're destroying the Lord's church. You know, why are you do, you're out to get us. And it, it's really not, I know it's easy to be like, well, the Discovery Channel's out to get the church. It's really not that. Um, they're exposing some things that probably need to be exposed. You know, Jesus said everything that's hidden will be disclosed. Everything that's in the darkness will be brought to light. And there are some things going on in church that need to be brought to light. There's some stuff that needs to be out in the open. Um, one of the reasons people are leaving the church is because they've been hurt by the church. Out of control egos, bullying leaders, financial misdeeds, moral misdeeds, the health and wealth gospel, which delivers way more than it can promises, uh, can't deliver what it promises, excuse me. Um, not to mention the sexual abuse scandal of the Catholic Church or the Me Too reckoning in evangelical churches or the historical sins of the Crusades and slavery. A lot of people just look at church and go, it's all a bunch of hypocrites and I don't want nothing to do with it. And um, they're right to some extent. Like when, when the, and, and when the church makes it all about itself, maybe we should not be surprised when, when we fail, we're going to push people away from the faith. Maybe we need to make it about Jesus and not the pastor and make it about Jesus and not the brand and make it about Jesus and not the, not the denomination. So anyway, we're going to talk more about that. I feel a little passionate about that one. Uh, the four. Thorny theological problems. So in our small group, uh, we went through the discussion guide that Tim uh, gave out, and I was asking everybody, like, what are your deconstruction stories? Like, what, you know, does anybody gone through this? And several had gone through it, and you know what the number one deconstruction story was? N number three, you know, hurt church hurt. You know, so that was, uh, experienced some kind of church hurt. But um, somebody said, what? I just, I never really heard of that term before, and so when you preached a couple weeks ago, I just followed the hashtag and started watching a bunch of videos, and, um, and I was surprised how many of them mentioned hell. Like, that, there was a ton of videos about, like, I just, it's the existence of hell. That's why I'm, I'm leaving the faith, because how could a loving God send people to um, eternal conscious torment? You know, how, I just, God is love, and everlasting torture just... I can't reconcile those two things, and therefore, I'm giving up on the faith. And, I mean, there's, there's a, that's an example of a thorny theological problem. I, I'd love to tell them, you know, there's different views of hell within Christianity. <laughs> maybe, maybe the one that you've heard is possibly not the, the one that everybody believes. But anyway, um, there's other people talk about things like the existence of evil, the problem of suffering, why bad things happen to good people, contradictions between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the troublesome parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, if you're reading the Bible with any intellectual honesty, there's some disturbing stuff in there. I mean, there's some things that's like, why would God tell them to kill all the men, women, and children when they occupied a land in the Old Testament? Or in the New Testament, why would God strike dead Ananias and Sapphira for telling a lie about uh, their offering? Uh, that seems a little extreme. So how do you understand those things? How do you deal with those things? And it's a lot of stuff that in Scripture that's hard to understand and a lot of stuff in theology. And many people, rather than trying to understand it and trying to work through the difficult task of interpretation and exegesis, feel like it's better to just leave it. Now, what's interesting to me is that they often treat it as a more intellectually honest approach. But choosing to deal with theological problems by not dealing with them is not necessarily an intellectually superior position. 
I, I, I'm, I'm, all for, uh, that's, I'm all for talking through theological problems. But just saying, well, I can't reconcile this and this, so I'm out. Is not, like, I think the, har- the harder work is staying and going, how do we reconcile that? And how do we understand that? And, and what is going on here? And so that's, um, but that is one of the big ones. Thorny theological problems is, is one of the big ones. And that may be yours. That's, I think um, there's a lot of folks that have wrestled with faith because they couldn't reconcile things. And a lot of times that is brought on by crisis. It's brought on, a lot of times it's brought on by death. Because the death of somebody very close to us. And suddenly it's like, where's God? And I thought he was good, and I thought he was loving, and I thought he cared for me, and so why, why is this happening to me? Especially if it was a very tragic, you know, like some, somebody very early in life or a child, and it's like you can't make sense of this love. I've heard about this loving God my whole life, but how do I make sense of this now? Here's the last one. Save the best for last, right? The cultural and political wars. Um, this is one of the reasons a lot of people are giving up on the faith. And I'm, I'm putting these together uh, because the lines have been blurred in recent years. Uh, politics has co-opted culture and culture has co-opted church. And sometimes the line between all three is blurry. Um, I read an article in The Guardian this week uh, called Losing Their Religion, Why U.S. Churches Are on the Decline. And COVID made the list and uh, a, a non-religious society, increasing non-religious society made the list. But you want to know the top of the list? The number one reason that people were leaving their church. About a quarter of the young adults who dropped out from church said they disagreed with their church's stance on political and social issues. And I don't know if that's their fault or the church's fault. Because there are some churches that are way too political. Way too political. I've seen the, the churches that you know have a, you know, a Democratic candidate standing on and preaching their sermon. I'm like, no, don't do that. Stop. Um, and I've seen churches that take up their collections and give it to the Republican who's running for re-election. Stop. No. Way too political. But Christians get way too political too. And so we leave church or we think about leaving faith because we're way too easily angered by anything said in church that seems to disagree with our politics. And I think that's the greatest challenge of preaching right now is people don't take, if I, if I weave into politics, and you know that I try not to get into politics, but I do get close sometimes. <laughs> but if I, if I weave into areas that feel a little bit political, people aren't measuring what I say against the Word of God. They're measuring what I say against the commentators on Fox News or the commentators on MSNBC. They're measuring what I say against the, you know, the podcast they're listening to right now or the TV they're watching right now or the news they're watching right now. And they're getting way more of a steady diet of that than they are of this. And, and I, that's dangerous that we can't, like we, we should be able to talk about those things in this content, um, in this context. And um, a lot of young people, I think, are tired of it. Maybe not just young people, maybe all people. A lot of people are tired of it. Um, some people are bailing on church not because they're looking for a more liberal church or a more conservative church they're looking for a church that doesn't force people into red and blue categories and they're getting a lot harder to find and uh, I can go a little bit deeper into why that is but they're looking for churches that engage the cultural issues of the day without condemning, pointing fingers and demanding lockstep agreement and one of the biggest ones politically and culturally one of the biggest ones is LGBTQ, and um, 
the fact that I just mentioned it, now you get nervous. You're like, dude, it's time to leave. Why are you bringing this up now? Like, this is, that's a huge topic. You can't talk about it. And, and some of you are thinking, you're not going to talk about that. Please don't talk about that. You're not going to do a sermon on that. Please don't do a sermon on that. I like this church. I like this church. I want to stay at this church. Please don't do a sermon on that. Because we've, we've come to believe that we have to agree with everything said from this stage in order to be a part of a community of faith. Or we have to agree with every theological position that the church has, every position they take on doctrine or culture or social issues. We've got to agree 100% in lockstep agreement in order to remain in that community of faith. And so what, what preachers do is we just say, well, let's just don't talk about it then. <laughs> and where does that lead us? We've got to be able to dialogue about sensitive issues. We've got to be able to dialogue about stuff going on in culture and society. We've got to be able to dialogue about, about all of this stuff. We've got to be able to talk about this stuff. And so that's kind of where we're going. I'm not going to dive deep into all of them. I'm going to dive deep into some of them. But we've got to be able to talk about it in church. We got, it's got to be a safe place to discuss this stuff. Because if we don't, we're never going to reach any understanding. We're, ne we're never going to be able to, to, to have any kind of beliefs if we're not able to talk about the things that are actually affecting our lives. So that's where we're headed. Uh, we're going to do a little bit deeper dive into these and, and kind of follow in that format of seek first to understand and then to be understood. So the rest of February, I'm going to take a few of these. We need to deconstruct some of these. Just go ahead and say that. We need to deconstruct some of these. Some of these we don't need to deconstruct, but we'll, we're going to talk more about those the rest of February, and then I want to pivot and go into how do we reconstruct healthy faith? How do we have a healthy faith that uh, brings us back to the centrality of love in the gospel? All right? That's where we're headed. Let me pray for us, and uh, we've got just one more thing to mention, and I'll get you out of here, okay? Uh, Father, I want to pray that you would be with us as we go through this study together, and, and just continue to be with us as we go through this. Uh, so many, we've been conditioned, primarily because of social media, we've been conditioned to, it's always us and them, and maybe politics contributes to this as well, it's always us and them and us and them, and we've been conditioned to yell at each other from our respective corners rather than talk and dialogue. And uh, I pray that you help us to follow the examples of your disciples. When, when Thomas pushed back against uh, the resurrection of Jesus, he stayed with them, and they let him stay. And I pray that you help us to figure out how to do that in our groups and in our families and in our churches. Help us to figure out uh, how to be a community of faith that lifts your son up, Jesus, as the number one priority and the main thing, the, really the only thing that gives us unity. It is the thing that keeps us together. We lift up your son, Jesus, and we don't allow our opinions on lesser issues to divide us. And so I pray you help us figure out how to do that because everything in our culture is pushing us in the other direction. So I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.